0: Pepperidge Farm, Milano. This is Danny Shapiro,
1: host of the hit podcast, Family Secrets. I hope you'll join us for some incredible conversations about family, identity, and what happens to both when the secrets that have been kept from us and the secrets we keep finally come to light. Listen and subscribe on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy B. Wilson and I'm Holly Fry. So we've had a lot of people who have asked us to talk about the Treaty of Waitangi and, and this is including a listener mail that we read on the podcast a very long time ago in which I pronounced Waitangi terribly, like really, really badly. Somebody later wrote in and, and said that I did a good job, and I'm pretty sure that person was kidding because I did a very bad job. Or so extremely I'm extremely kind. Yes, I'm, I'm hoping to do a better job today. I've been listening to a whole lot of film from New Zealand. So this is a treaty that was signed by representatives of the British government and the Maori of New Zealand or uh, as it's known in the Maori language, Aotearoa, and that means land of the long white cloud. So this is the document that established New Zealand as a nation. And unlike with many, many, many other treaties between the British government and indigenous peoples that had happened earlier in history, the spirit of this agreement was really to see to the best interests of both the Maori and the crown. Which makes it kind of an anomaly uh, and kind of groundbreaking in the words or in the world of uh, like colonial and indigenous relations. However, the English and Maori texts of this treaty are so different that they're almost fundamentally different documents. And so debate over exactly what the treaty meant and how it should be interpreted started almost immediately. And given the history of mankind on the earth, It should also be a surprise to no one that not everything afterward followed the original spirit of the treaty anyway. So uh, that's what we're going to talk about today, this treaty and how it came about and uh, some of what it led to. And, you know, as with any treaty, there are pros and cons to it. But when you look at the grand spectrum um, of relations between uh, colonizing governments and indigenous peoples, Uh, this one was a lot of different, a lot different than a lot of what came before.
0: So we're gonna, uh, do a little bit of groundwork here about New Zealand. Uh, Dutch explorer Abel Tasman first sighted New Zealand in 1642. And then James Cook's cabin boy, uh, who was called Young Nick, spotted it again in 1769.
1: Europeans were fairly slow to arrive in New Zealand from that point. So the whalers and the sealers came first, and then missionaries followed not long after.
0: By the 1830s, there were approximately 125,000 Maori living in New Zealand, and a few British settlers made it a frontier outpost of New South Wales, which at the time was a British penal colony.
1: Overall, for the most part, Early relations between the Maori and the Europeans who were arriving in New Zealand were mostly peaceful. There were occasional disputes and fights. However, the British law did not extend to New Zealand because New Zealand wasn't British territory. And so this meant that there really was not any law governing the British subjects who wound up there, who naturally did not feel like they were beholden to Maori law. And so this was especially problematic given that many of the subjects of the Crown who made their way to New Zealand were convicts who had escaped from New South Wales. So you had people who were convicted criminals making their way to this other island where there were no laws to govern them.
0: And as more people moved in, uh, a trading effort started to grow because people need things. And so uh, more than 1,000 British ships uh, began visiting New Zealand every year. And New Zealand started to become more appealing to other European governments as a consequence, including France.
1: Eventually, as the population of Europeans started to grow, some of them asked the British government to help establish some kind of official system to try to maintain order. It was this kind of lawless place among the European settlers at this point. They were also, a lot of the British uh, subjects were hoping for protection that would prevent the encroachment of other European governments. And at first, the British were really not eager to do this. They did not really want to, uh, you know, extend their holdings into New Zealand at all. So eventually, in 1835, a man named James Busby was given the official post of British resident in New Zealand. And this was sort of like being a consular official. He was there to represent the crown, that was his job, but he really didn't have any actual power, and he had almost no support from the British government. So consequently, people called him the man of war Without Guns.
0: One of Busby's acts as British resident, uh, which kind of cracks me up as a title for some reason, uh, although one that was done without any authority to do so, was to draw up a Declaration of Independence of the Northern Chiefs. And this document declared New Zealand a sovereign nation under the absolute rule of its hereditary chiefs and tribal leaders. And his goal wasn't so much to make the Maori independent as to try to block the French from making their own treaty and taking the colony over.
1: Yes, Britain was not currently at war with France when this was going on. But they had been in the recent past and for many, many years. So they were at best a little wary of each other.
0: All I can think of is the Eddie Izzard bit where he does, do you have a flag?
1: <laughs> it's, it is actually a lot like this. This is like, not for you. <laughs> that, yes, there is real, there was real discussion about we need to get the flag. We need to get a flag for the New Zealanders. People will be more, uh, respectful of New Zealand if it has a flag. Like that was a real step <laughs> in this whole process that we are not going into a lot of detail about today. So Busby presented this declaration to 34 Maori chiefs at his home on the North Island. So additional chiefs then were originally present, eventually signed the document. And then in 1936, the Crown officially acknowledged Maori nationhood based on the existence of this declaration.
0: And before this point, the Maori had not really had the concept of the state as part of their worldview. In their social structure, each tribe governed itself under the leadership of a chief known as Rangatira. However, as word of the Declaration of Independence spread, it solidified the idea among the Maori that they were in fact in charge of their own affairs and able to govern themselves.
1: So this declaration, though, only gave New Zealand a temporary respite from the influence of all these political factions from Europe. By the late 1830s, there were about 2,000 settlers from Europe living in New Zealand, and a number of British businesses and shipping companies were planning to scale up their operations there, and there, of course, was also interest substantially from France. There were also huge amounts of trade going on between New Zealand and New South Wales. So the Maori wanted to begin trading with other nations themselves, but doing so was difficult without being first officially recognized as a nation, which brings us back to the question of whether they had a flag, which was a real point of discussion
0: Uh, in all of this. In a move that was definitely as much about protecting its own interests from France as protecting the Maori from anybody, in 1839, the British government dispatched William Hobson of the Royal Navy to go to New Zealand and negotiate on behalf of the Crown. And his assignment was to establish a treaty with the Maori. And once that was done... He was to act as lieutenant governor for any part of New Zealand that would agree to become a British colony.
1: Hobson got a lot of direction about exactly what he was supposed to do. And included in all of this were these instructions from Lord Normanby, the colonial secretary, regarding this assignment. This is, quote, All dealings with the Aborigines for their lands must be conducted on the same principles of sincerity, justice, and good faith as must govern your transactions with them for the recognition of Her Majesty's sovereignty in these islands. Nor is this all. They must not be permitted to enter into any contracts in which they might be ignorant and unintentional authors of injuries to themselves. You will not, for example, purchase from them any territory— the retention of which by them would be essential or highly conducive to their own comfort, safety, or substance. The acquisition of land by the Crown for the future settlement of British subjects must be confined to such districts as the natives can alienate without distress or serious inconvenience to themselves. To secure the observance of this rule will be one of the first duties of their official protector." So, if you know anything about relations with indigenous people in the world before this point, this is basically the opposite of how a lot of these treaties were previously carried out. Like, there were many, many treaties in the settlement of what is now the United States, and in Africa, and in the South Pacific, and in South America, that were basically like, here is this treaty where we're going to make you think you're getting a good deal, but we, the people who are colonizing, are actually taking you for a giant ride. So this was specifically at this point, the world having learned that this was a bad thing to do uh, against the rules. Like he he was supposed to get down there and actually put a treaty together in good faith. And so considering the tone of a lot of earlier treaties between the British uh, and indigenous peoples or later Americans and indigenous peoples or whoever and indigenous peoples, uh, this was hugely progressive. Um, But at the same time, some of the flavor of the instruction was also kind of racist, since a big underlying tone of all of it uh, was that from the British point of view, the Maori were not actually capable of handling their own affairs. So there, although it was a big step forward in relations with indigenous people, it was not entirely free from problems.
0: Hobson arrived on January 29th of 1840, and he had been corresponding with George Gipps, who was governor of New South Wales, about what exactly should go into the treaty. And once he arrived, Hobson also worked with his secretary, who was named James Freeman, as well as James Busby, who we discussed earlier, on completing this treaty. So they basically
1: got completely down to the wire on putting the treaty together. They had summoned all of these chiefs to a big meeting, uh... But they didn't have a draft of the treaty to actually have translated until the night before. So on on the eve of this meeting, they handed the treaty over to Henry Williams, who was a missionary. And Williams translated the text into Maori with the help of his son, Edward. At this point, the Williamses had established relationships with the Maori and they spoke the Maori language, but they really did not have a lot of time to put their translation together.
0: On February 5th, once again in Busby's home, the representatives of Britain presented the treaty to about 500 assembled Maori. And while there was extensive discussion, no agreement was actually signed.
1: The next day, which was February 6th, after a little more discussion, 45 chiefs did sign the treaty. Uh, The first to sign was a chief named Honeheke, who was also called Honepokai. And he felt a treaty with the British was their best option. The day before the treaty was signed, he reportedly said to Hobson, Governor, you should stay with us and be like a father. If you go away, then the French and the rum sellers will take us Maori over. So Honeheke's support was really instrumental in getting a lot of the other chiefs to sign the treaty.
0: And from there, the original treaty, as well as copies of it, were sent around the islands to gather additional signatures. And in the end, uh, more than 500 Maori signatures were applied to the document, and 13 of the signatures were from women. Overwhelmingly, the Maori who signed the treaty signed a Maori language version with at least one British subject signing as well. And who this British signatory was varied from place to place
1: not every Rangatira signed the document. Some of them never got a chance to, because while copies of the treaty were distributed, they didn't make it to every single part of the islands that make up New Zealand. There were also definitely chiefs who opposed the treaty on the grounds that the protections that were being granted were just not enough to outweigh the independence that they would be giving up. There were also uh, chiefs who were suspicious of the British government's intent about the whole thing, And then farther inland, there were chiefs who just didn't see the point because they, not being from the more coastal areas, hadn't actually had a lot of contact with people from Europe by then.
0: And even though not every chief had signed, the British government felt that the treaty applied to all Maori, whether they had signed it or not. They also almost universally viewed the English language version of the text as the true version of the text. Uh, Within a few years, British officials admitted that crown sovereignty would outweigh Maori leadership when the two were in conflict. Uh, Hey, Tracy, do you want to pause for a moment from our uh, Pacific Adventure for a word from a sponsor? Yes. Okay. Hey, listeners, I wanted to tell you about a new podcast from iHeartRadio called The Women, hosted by Rose Reed. It is a fascinating and deep-dive interview show where Rose talks to changemakers and disruptors and she finds out what really drives them. So she will ask each of them, what was your first stand and how do you navigate success and failure? And really, what's the cost of fighting for others? These interviews are really personal, and they're candid, and sometimes they're a little bit crass, but they are always really enlightening. You can listen to these firebrands and take away lessons that will help you navigate your own life and forge your own path. The debut season includes women like Valerie Plame, the former CIA agent who is now running for Congress, and whistleblower and pediatrician Dr. Mona Hannah-Attisha, who exposed the Flint water crisis and became the center of a swirling, swirling amount of problems, uh, and the legendary Buffy St. Marie 60s songwriter and activist Uh, I have personal interest in this show because I adore Rose and I executive produce it and I think you're really going to enjoy the way that she gets into these conversations that feel like two friends talking and they are an absolute delight so subscribe to the women on the iHeartRadio app on Apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts hey Holly we have some exciting news Sistine Chapel. So it's going to be a fantastic trip.
1: You can get the whole list of places that we are going and information about booking at defineddestinations.com. Scroll down to the Roman Florence trip with Stuffy Mist in History Class, or come over to our social media. We have posts about it there too. So to get back to this treaty itself, the Treaty of Waitangi opens with a preamble, and that's followed
0: by three articles. Article 1, quote, the chiefs of the Confederation of the United Tribes of New Zealand and the separate and independent chiefs who have not become members of the Confederation cede to Her Majesty the Queen of England absolutely and without reservation all the rights and powers of sovereignty which the said Confederation or individual chiefs respectively exercise or possess or may be supposed to exercise or to possess over their respective territories as the sole sovereign thereof.
1: So the extremely short and oversimplified version of this is basically you, the British, are the boss of us, the Maori, as of now. Yeah. So Article 2 reads, Her Majesty, the Queen of England, confirms and guarantees to the chiefs and tribes of New Zealand and to the respective families and individuals thereof the full, exclusive, and undisturbed possessions of their lands and estates, forests, fisheries, and other properties which they may collectively or individually possess, so long as it is their wish and desire to retain the same in their possession. But the chiefs of the United Tribes and the individual chiefs yield to Her Majesty the exclusive right of preemption over such lands, as the proprietors thereof may be disposed to alienate at such prices as may be agreed upon between the respective proprietors and the persons appointed by her majesty to treat with them on that behalf.
0: So the uh, oversimplified summation on that one is uh, you can keep your land and your stuff unless you want to give it to us. Uh, and if you want to do that, we'll figure out a price.
1: Article three is in consideration thereof. Her Majesty, the Queen of England, extends to the natives of New Zealand her royal protection and imparts to them all the rights and privileges of British subjects. That one's already pretty short. But it basically, (laughs) uh, in exchange for giving up their sovereignty, the Maori get the protection of the crown and the rights and privileges that are due to British subjects.
0: And the document ends with an epilogue, which essentially states that both parties have entered into the spirit of the treaty, uh, which has been important in determining whether future acts violated the treaty. Uh, it's the spirit, not the letter. So
1: that's the English parts. But there are some huge and important and meaningful differences between the English and the Maori texts in almost every part of the entire treaty.
0: And those differences start right from the beginning. Uh, the English preamble is focused on providing for British settlement of New Zealand while also protecting the Maori's interests, as well as setting up a government in the interest of maintaining peace and order. But the Maori preamble is focused on securing Maori claims to land and tribal governance and autonomy, or Tino rangatiratanga. In Article 1 of the English
1: version, the Maori chiefs are ceding, quote, the rights and powers of sovereignty to the queen of england but in the maori translation the word sovereignty was translated to a word that's closer to governorship which is a much less encompassing concept than sovereignty there was no exact translation for the word sovereignty in the maori language
0: the english version of the article uh, of article 2 grants the maori quote the full exclusive and undisturbed possession of their lands and estates forests fisheries and other properties. But the Maori translation uh, used a phrase that meant, quote, the full essence of chieftainship. Again, suggesting that the Maori were more or less getting full control over their own affairs. Uh, the translation of forests, fisheries, and other properties is problematic too, since it was translated into a Maori word that uh, more closely means treasures.
1: Yeah. There've been a, a lot of uh, discussions about what is included in treasures. It was like, is the Maori language a treasure? Is yeah, the that's Maori a pretty culture, a that,
0: treasure? Yeah. That's a word of nebulous meaning. It's
1: very nebulous. And so with huge differences, like huge meaningful differences in the overwhelming bulk of this treaty, the debate about what the treaty was really supposed to mean and about what the Maori believed that they were signing started almost immediately.
0: And on top of that there is significant speculation about how uh, exactly those discrepancies between the two texts came to be there was it a simple error you know due to this sort of rush translation that had to happen or was it actually a more orchestrated effort to slant the text uh in an effort to make it more palatable to the Maori and there is uh, really no clear documentation although there's loads of speculation
1: There's also a big subject of speculation around how much the British signatories were even aware that these discrepancies existed. There had been lengthy meetings and discussions about the treaty and the text, and the Williamses were, as we said before, familiar with the Maori language. Um, But, you know, they didn't have a lot of time to put this all together, so... Uh, you know, at this point in history, it's kind of unclear exactly how much both sides knew about the differences between what one was signing and what the other was signing.
0: But regardless of the differences, uh, with this treaty in place, New Zealand became a British colony at first as part of New South Wales and later that same year as its own colony.
1: The Only Way is Through, a new podcast in partnership with iHeartRadio and Under Armour. Join us as we hear from the world's greatest athletes, coaches, and trainers as they discuss how they utilize training, competition, recovery, and the latest innovations in fitness to improve their performance and push through their personal, physical, and mental challenges. Here is Canadian heptathlete Georgia Ellenwood. You can practice every day because you're working on things. Like you might slow something down or exaggerate another thing. But when you're competing, you're going as hard as you can for even that short amount of time. It's a lot of intensity and it's a lot of physical power. It's a lot of mental power. I think that's why it's so draining. And to shift gears after every event, like, oh, I just ran the hurdles. Now I have to think about high jump. How do I get as high up in the air as I can after I just tried to run as fast as I can? Giving that much intensity in such contrasting events can can be really be difficult. Listen to The Only Way is Through, available now on the iHeartRadio
0: app or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: So because this was the document that established New Zealand as a nation to try to recap everything that happened as a result of the Treaty of Waitangi would basically require summing up basically the entire history of New Zealand from the time that it was signed. So, to extremely briefly summarize, with the door now opened to settling from Britain, uh, a lot of settlers from England, Ireland, and Scotland started making their way to New Zealand. With thousands of people arriving over the next decade,
0: within a few years, Honeheke had withdrawn his support for the treaty. He was feeling disillusioned that it was not, in fact, as beneficial for the Maori as he had believed it was going to be. As an act of protest, he had the flagpole at a British settlement repeatedly cut down.
1: In the 1850s, the European settlers in New Zealand established their own government. And in 1853, the first parliament convened in New Zealand. But at that point, the Maori were completely excluded from holding seats or from voting, Uh, following a pretty British tradition. um, Land ownership was a requirement for both of these, and most property ownership among the Maori at that point was communal instead of individual. So it took a while for that to shift so that it was more compatible um, with the Maori worldview to allow the Maori to participate in the government. Uh, In
0: 1867, Maori men gained the right to vote and the Maori people actually gained four seats. And, And that was intended to be a temporary move. Today, however, the Maori continue to have seats in parliament and can choose to vote among the general or the Maori electorate. The number of Maori seats in parliament varies depending on how many choose to vote in the Maori electorate.
1: I think right now there are seven based on that number. Um, And there's a lot of debate about whether having specifically Maori seats are whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. There's debate on both sides. um, And I can see both sides of that argument. There are people who feel like maybe the Maori would have more representation if they Uh, did not have these pre-arranged seats, or people who feel like having these seats at all is racist in some way. Like, there's a a lot of ongoing discussion about that. In 1975, the Waitangi Tribunal was established, and this investigates claims by Maori on breaches of the treaty. For the first 10 years of its existence, this tribunal only investigated issues that happened since it was established, However, in 1985, its scope was expanded to include everything that has happened since the treaty was signed in 1840.
0: And only Maori can make claims, and these are against either the crown or against legislation. They can be contemporary or historical. Uh, There's also a special land court to deal specifically with Maori land.
1: So today, New Zealand has grown into a parliamentary democracy with three official languages, English, Maori, and Sign Language. The House of Representatives, which is a body of elected officials, makes the laws. It's also simultaneously a constitutional monarchy, with the reigning sovereign of Great Britain being the sovereign of New Zealand as well. So as we are recording this, Queen Elizabeth II is the queen of the United Kingdom, as well as being queen of New Zealand. So in this whole arrangement, that's a separate thing. New Zealand is not just part of the United Kingdom. The queen's involvement in the government is also mostly symbolic. She's represented by the governor general, but a prime minister handles the day-to-day running of the government. Um, I I know most of our listeners are from the United States, and this sounds like a very complicated system of government, considering uh, what, what a lot of our listeners are used to.
0: Yeah, it's a lot of layers of different branches of government sort of all theoretically playing nice together. Yeah, yeah.
1: To make it even a little bit more complex, the name New Zealand does not even come from the British. It comes from the Dutch. So when the Dutch cited it, uh, they named it after the Netherlands province of Zealand, uh, because at that point, Australia was called New Holland, which, you know, is another part of Netherlands.
0: And the treaty itself was actually almost lost or destroyed a number of times over the years, uh, including by fire and by efforts to preserve the document that were actually damaging uh now these documents are in the Constitution Room at the Archives of New Zealand in Wellington.
1: I like this story because it does represent such a big step forward in relationships between colonial governments and indigenous peoples. But at the same time, like, it's not perfect, and there's still colonialism happening in this whole situation. So, like, I'm really of two minds about it. But without this treaty, like, when you... uh Look at documents about New Zealand or if you ever visit New Zealand, like you see it's sort of a multicultural place in a lot of ways at this time. And I don't think that would exist without this treaty having been uh, created and signed.
0: And this story is also a sort of a nice snapshot of how issues of government can become extremely complex uh, you know, based on one thing. Like, that one translation led to a great deal of discussion and all of these sort of bizarre layers of government that happened as a consequence.
1: Yeah. So when this, when the Waitangi Tribunal uh, looks at cases where people have filed a grievance against the government or against a law, it's sort of looking at, okay, what was the spirit of the treaty supposed to be in this case and was the spirit of the treaty followed? Um, I tried to f- find some data about, how many cases the tribunal has heard. Um, And I was not able to find that before we recorded. So if someone knows and you send us, we will probably read it on a future listener mail. Do you have some listener mail now? I do. So we have gotten so much mail about our recent episode about the Spanish flu pandemic. Um, A lot of it has been from people who are sharing personal stories about grandparents and other relatives who died during the flu or or who survived the flu. Um, This one is from Abby. Abby says, hey, ladies, I'm a grad student in history, and I'm writing my thesis on a pandemic flu. I loved the Spanish flu episode, and I just wanted to add a bit of knowledge I have collected about flu. I'm studying the 1889 to 1894 Russian flu, the pandemic that immediately preceded the Spanish flu. It has some shocking similarities, a similar death curve, although it was less dramatic, It was very virulent to the extent that it shut down and impacted services, telegraph operators, stores, postal workers, and policemen, and the panic the pandemic caused. For context, I'm studying this pandemic's effect on the British medical community. I don't have the numbers in front of me, but it affected millions of people. Newspapers tracked the flu's progress across Europe and led the young public health board in the UK to track in what was Victorian real-time, The disease across Europe and with the country and within the country, people freaked out. It was luckily a mild flu, but touched many people's lives. In many ways, it was a milder Spanish flu, although it is unlikely that the two virus strains are related. During this pandemic, the bacillus was identified and bacterial pneumonia and bronchitis are linked to influenza. This influenza was also associated with depression to those who survived. Doctors noticed an uptick in the rate of suicide of influenza survivors, although this may also have some cultural factors. My thesis advisor is an epidemiologist, and don't worry. Ironically, the more flu strains you get, the better prepared for a major pandemic your body is. Kind of. That's simplistic. But a major pandemic, rather than an annual epidemic cold and flu season, generally results from the appearance of a new strain, and before 2009 would result in the new strain replacing the old strain. So the new strain doesn't have immunomarkers to save people. This has changed recently with the newer vaccine practices and technology. One theory for why older generations better survive large-scale dramatic pandemics is that they have more exposures to the older viruses that were replaced. So when the new virus A is replacing old virus B in a pandemic, those exposed to even older virus c may have better ability to, to survive virus a you should still get a flu shot and so this will help your immune system even more but the more strains you're exposed to your body is better prepared for taking an entirely new strain and then she goes on to talk a little bit more uh, about vaccination technology and how the flu is very scary but you're probably going to survive so um thank you very much abby
0: Yes, I like how many people have written uh, to reassure us that I will not die of flu. Yeah,
1: I also like...
0: Uh, I genuinely appreciate it. Like, yeah. I'm, I'm not being facetious when I say that.
1: I also like how many people have written to us about Plague Incorporated, which I talked about um, yeah. previously, which uh, that has scenarios now... Um and there is a swine flu scenario that is based on being having things in common with the Spanish flu epidemic and I have not played that one yet. I pretty much immediately played Black Death and Smallpox.
0: Like you do, of yeah. course. So, you know. Hey, so if you would like to write us, you can totally do that thing. Uh, and our email is a little bit different. It's all still the same. It comes to us just the same as it always has. But the email now is historypodcast at howstuffworks.com. You can connect with us on Facebook at facebook.com slash stuff, on Twitter at mistinhistory, at mistinhistory.tumblr.com, and at pinterest.com slash mistinhistory. And we hope you do. If you'd
1: like to learn more about what we talked about today, you can come to the website of our parent company, HowStuffWorks.com and put the word Maori in the search bar and you will find how the Maori work. You can also come to our website, which is MistInHistory.com, and you can find our show notes and links to all the podcasts and all kinds of other stuff. You could do all that and a whole lot more at MistInHistory.com or HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, it's Laura Wasser, host of the All's Fair podcast on iHeartRadio. I'm a family law attorney, which is really a euphemism for a divorce attorney, and I've been practicing for over 20 years. I've learned some very interesting things along the way, and I can tell you that when dealing with matters of the heart, rules seldom apply. With advice and anecdotes from many of my friends, some of whom may be celebrities, as well as the best legal, financial, and mental health professionals in the country, our goal is to educate, enlighten, empower, and entertain you on the way to a better understanding of how relationships work. iHeartRadio is number one for podcasts, but don't take our word for it. Find All's Fair with Laura Wasser on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Hi, everyone. I'm Katie Couric here to let you know that my podcast, Next Question with me, Katie Couric, is back for its second season. I'll be diving into some big issues like this country's devastating maternal mortality rate, the rise of astrology, and a little thing called the presidential election. Listen to Next Question. It comes out every Thursday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite shows.